Good morning, FCC family. I hope everybody's doing well this morning. I hope you uh, enjoyed the worship. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. While, we, while you do that, I'll, um, I'll tell you a little story, a little funny little story. It's not that funny. Um, sermons, uh, sermons are sometimes easy to write, and sermons are sometimes very difficult to write. Uh, normally, I like to get started on my next sermon on Monday, uh, and I like to have it done by Thursday. Um, this sermon, though, got, got written yesterday, and it's not because I didn't try. In fact, it got, in fact, it was after dinner, okay? I'm not going to try to hide anything. And it's not because I didn't do the research, and it's not because I didn't try. It's because every time I sat down, I said, there's nothing. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, uh, when you when you lack inspiration, it's incredible. Uh, you just can't say anything. But the other hard one of the hardest parts about this passage and about this verse, it's verse six, is that it's so on the nose. It's so straightforward. Uh, and there's a little bit of a metaphor there, but it's not a metaphor that nobody gets. So what in the world are you supposed to do when it's just quite obvious? Um, and anyway, yesterday. Uh, it all really came to me, and I'll uh, I'll call it the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and you can you can judge the quality of the sermon afterwards whether you want to give credit to the Holy Spirit or not. Uh, I had a professor in college that said he had heard the Holy Spirit blamed for a lot of sermons that he's pretty sure he had nothing to do with. Um, so anyway, while I was uh, stacking firewood yesterday, that's when it all came, and I I think that. Uh, for for me and for for a lot of people, uh, if if the mind shuts down, do something physical, and that that was what was going on. I, I think all week uh, I was also preoccupied with how we're going to do the phase two of recongregating. That was the number one thing that was on my mind all week. So my mind for sermon writing was pretty well shut down. And then yesterday, while I was um, stacking firewood, it all it all just started coming, and uh, so. You could ask me, how long, how long did you prepare for this sermon? Uh, and I could say, or how long did you work on this sermon? And I could say, oh, an hour or something like that. Or the fact is, no, everything you do, and this, this proves it to me. Uh, I was listening to a, um, a group of preachers talk one time, and I know I'm just rambling at this point, but, um, it, it's, it's helpful for you to know a little bit about the process. Um, I was listening to a group of preachers, and they were all talking about other things, but the question finally came up in the conversation, how long do you spend preparing sermons? And these are all megachurch pastors. They are people that you tune in to listen to. They are movers and shakers in the church today. And uh, there's one guy, and I like him a lot. He's really good. Uh, and he, um, he said about 20 hours. Spends about 20 hours a week, and he's probably one of those pastors who works 60 or 70 hours a week uh, anyway, but 20 hours working uh, on a sermon, and that's incredible. He's one of the most passionate and well-informed preachers I've ever heard, too. His name's David Platt. You should listen to David Platt. Um, but 20 hours, and he was he was on the, he was the 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 the, the most. And they all kind of went down, and they all kind of said, you know, and most of them averaged probably uh, between uh, eight and fifteen hours, something like that, working on a sermon. And then there was one guy there, and this one guy, he is a uh, uh, he's a smart aleck preacher. He's very good. He's quite the mover and the shaker, uh, but he's a smart aleck. And it came down to him, and he said, 60 to 90 minutes. And everybody was like, yeah, that sounds about right for you. 
Um, but he's a mover and a shaker too, and his opinions are good. And the fact is, he's wrong. He doesn't spend 60 to 90 minutes. Because any preacher will tell you that every conversation you have, every book you read, every other passage you read, it all goes in. So this guy, David Platt, who spends 20 hours, he doesn't spend 20 hours on a sermon. He spends hundreds of hours on every single sermon. He just is a continual learner, like any of those guys are. And their experience and their uh, education and their research, it all goes in uh, to every sermon that they write. And so I, I, when I started thinking about this, I was like, oh my, I, really? I spent about an hour on this sermon? And then I realized, no, 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 no. You, a lot of the content for this sermon has come from a book that you've been reading that really informed what you're going on here. And so how long have you been reading that book? Well, every day for an hour for a long time. Okay. So anyway, I, I didn't just come up with this stuff off the cuff. And I want you to, I just, I, and I don't even know why I'm telling you all this except to just say that, um, it is important for any Bible teacher and I'm not the only Bible teacher in this church. There are a lot of Bible teachers in this church for us to be continually learning, continually studying, continually getting input because it comes out in every single lesson you teach, every single sermon that you give. All right, so let's get into this. Let's read our passage, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start actually preaching. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down... His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread verse 6 again because that's our text for today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, all right, so the writer of Ecclesiastes was this individual who was highly accomplished and had experienced more things than anybody else. And, and most researchers, scholars, uh, all agree that it's Solomon, but and in fact, most people take for granted that's, that it's Solomon, but it actually doesn't say, I, Solomon, wrote this. It's a very interesting uh, thing to study, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. But that's not what this sermon's about. Whoever wrote it, it really could have almost been any of the kings of Israel, not because they were all so smart or they were all so glorious as Solomon, but they all were people at the very top of the, well, I'll just say food chain or whatever, the very top of society, and so whatever they wanted to accomplish, the resources were at their disposal. And whatever they wanted to experience, the, the resources, the, the experience, it was at their disposal. They could table everything else and go do whatever it was that they wanted to do. And so whoever wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll go ahead and say Solomon. Solomon had accomplished an enormous amount of stuff because 
Anything he wanted, he could have, and he could build with it anything that he wanted, and he could sit back at the end of the day and say, look what I built, or look what the people that I also own, I made them build. And at the end of the day, if he said, you know what, I, I haven't had a thrill in a while, I haven't experienced anything new in a while, I'm going to go do this next, he could do it. Because he didn't have to labor and toil for every scrap of bread that he had. Any accomplishment he wanted, he could do it. Any experience he wanted, he could have it. And yet, what is the very first thing that he says at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes? After a long life of doing, of accomplishing anything that he wanted, or experiencing anything that he wanted, he sat back and he said, vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, or, and it's gone. That's what it really kind of means. means that, that, that word vanity or meaningless at the beginning of, a, of a, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's actually the same word as the, the Adam and Eve son Abel. His name was Abel or Havel. And it's Havel, Havel. And what does it really mean? It means a puff of smoke, a puff of smoke. And why would they name Abel that? Why would, or why would he become known as a puff of smoke? Because his life was a puff of smoke. It was here today. It was gone tomorrow. And it was gone. He was good, he was righteous, he was the son that you wanted, and then he was gone. And then this king in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he looks back at everything he had accomplished and everything that he had experienced, and at the end of his life he says, it's gone. It was all done in vanity, or there's no meaning to it now because it's gone. And so he, he sits back and he says, all this accomplishment, all this experience, it was for nothing. It was for nothing. The book that I've been reading recently that uh, uh, that informs so much of this sermon is called Habits of the Heart, and it was uh, recommended by Tim Keller. So if Tim Keller cites something, I feel like I ought to read it because he, to me, is one of the greatest Christian thinkers, at least in the English-speaking world. Uh, so he, he recommended this book. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll read that book. It sounded like a good book. Whatever he quoted sounded really good, so I bought it. It is one of the densest, most academic books I have ever read. The, the, uh, the, the title, Habits of the Heart, makes it sound like it's some sort of very touchy-feely type of book. It's extremely academic. In fact, it's so dense and so academic, and the print is very small, that I can only read two or three pages at a time before it's like, all right, I've just burned uh, every, every everything I've got in my brain for a while. I'm going to have to close this, put this aside, go get another cup of coffee, and then I can do something else. Thankfully, it's, it's, it's cut up into little chunks that are, are a little more easily digestible, but it is highly, highly academic. And the interesting thing is that it's not about you and the habits of your heart either. It's about uh, American society from the beginning. American society from the beginning. Habits of not just your heart, but the American heart. Habits of the heart for Americans. And it, it, it can apply to the West, and it, in some ways it can apply to all of humanity as well. But there are two individuals that uh, the writers, and it's several writers actually, uh, that they say go into the making of sort of the American soul, the American psyche, the thing that drives Americans, or the things that uh, by which Americans define accomplishment or uh, a life well lived. And the first person that they uh, point to that sort of typifies um, what, it, what it means to be an American is Benjamin Franklin. Okay, so Benjamin Franklin was this incredible individual, and the the more that I've studied him through this book and through other things, the more I realize, wow, uh, uh, he's much more than I thought. 
Um, they, they, they talk about Benjamin Franklin, and they say he was the very first self-made man. He was uh, born into a, a, a farmer's household, fairly poor, not a, not not high class, not not uh, not high society, anything like that. In fact, didn't have much of a chance of his own education. So uh, early on, he he did everything he could to educate himself, and then he got apprenticed to his older brother, who was a jerk, uh, and so he escaped that apprenticeship, even illegally, really, uh, and went out and became a printer on his own. His br- the apprenticeship was for a printing shop, so he became a printer, and then. Uh, uh, printers, uh, you, you can just print everything everybody else thinks, or you can start printing things that you that you think. And so Benjamin Franklin becomes this uh, this thinker. And then after he uh, earns enough money, he starts uh, uh, satisfying all the curiosity that he's got in his mind, and he starts doing a lot of scientific research. And um, what what I what it boils down to me is that there are several individuals in our society today who are innovators scientist types, but they're also politically active and they, they speak about society and where society should be going. Uh, and there are several people like that today. And uh, the one that kind of uh, comes to mind, just kind of my knee jerk, is Elon Musk. Elon Musk is this very, this brilliant individual who is also quite accomplished and very wealthy. Um, and he also is uh, politically vocal and he's pushing society or he, he, he gives advice and people listen to him. And if you can think of Benjamin Franklin as being the Elon Musk of his day, uh, and he, he was actually the one that mentored, Benjamin Franklin mentored all the other founding fathers, all those other uh, minds that got together and, 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 um, and uh, made the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, all of that. He's, he's this, this old man who was behind them, uh, coaching them and talking to them and, and thinking through things with them. But it, it wasn't just politics and it wasn't just printing. Uh, he made all kinds of things. And he even was was uh, researching electricity. And electricity at that time, okay, it's nothing to us now. We all understand electricity. I don't, actually. Uh, uh, an amp, a watt, and a volt is the exact same thing to me. I have no idea what the difference is. But um, he was doing research in electricity, and electricity... Then it was almost like starting studying dark matter. Now it's like this is theoretical. Can you harness this thing? What can you do with this thing? We just need to understand how this thing works before we can actually put it to use. But he is the one doing so much of that uh, that research all by himself. Um, he was uh, by the year 1785. He was the richest American, his most influential American. He might have been the first president, except he was too old by the time uh, the Constitution was written. He was a mover and a shaker big time. And his, his writings, his autobiography, and all the little things that he published became sort of the pattern that everybody looked at and said, now that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be, the self-made man. All right. So there's your first typical American or your first highest expression of what it means to be an American in our society. And then in the book, they come back and they say, now, 100 years later, it swings to a different, uh, a different pole. And you have poets that are coming out and they're talking, they're, they're pushing people not for accomplishment, but for experience. And uh, they cited Walt Whitman as, as this person who uh, engaged his entire life, not in building some kind of scientific or business empire, not a, not towards achieving an enormous amount of wealth or anything like that, but in encouraging people to experience life. 
Uh, and he and I think Thoreau, you would you might say, they were these people that were trying to push people to experience and, and get a high level of not sort of mental achievement and not societal achievement and not business achievement. He was pushing them for a personal experiential achievement out here because what does all the money matter? What does all the uh, all these tangibles, what do they matter? What is this kingdom empire, uh, business empire, whatever that you're building, what does it matter if over here you're not experiencing life to the fullest? And so we have a society in America where things swung from one direction uh, to the other towards achievement that's tangible, visible, and that other people will respect to over here. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I want to experience this myself. And I would even say in all of United States history, we swing from these to, from one to the other a lot. Um, there are times where we make great strides in technological and business, uh, achievement that, that realm uh, of society and there are certain individuals who their uh, their wealth or their business empires, whatever it is, their technological advancements, whatever they were doing, that becomes it. That is who you want to be. That is who you look up to the most, and they're the biggest movers and shakers. And then every once in a while, over here on the other side, there are certain individuals or movements that they are. They begin to be what pushes uh, the United States. And really, to me, the reason that we abandon one pole and go to the other is because at a certain point, we get offended. We start to see that is wrong. That is empty. That is nothing. That does not satisfy. In fact, it goes so far in either direction that what we see is your drive for either achievement, accomplishment, or experience caused you to use people and toss them aside. And lives were lost or Souls were lost, hearts were lost because of it. So over here, during times of great uh, scientific and, and national advancement, there's a, at a certain point, things go overboard, and you have people that we call robber barons. They were people, they were just business people who were advancing everything that they had, but they took it so far that they tossed people aside, and the, the common laborers that they used... Uh, their lives were spent, and even in slavery, their lives were spent for somebody else's empire. And it gets so offensive that, okay, in the Civil War, we fight a war over it, or uh, in the late 1800s, they, everybody gets so offended by it that they form labor unions, and violence happens there too. And so we begin to swing all the way over to the other side and say, I don't care about you. I don't care about your advancement. I don't care about your accomplishments. I don't care about uh, the new technology. It's all for nothing if we lose our humanity in it. So I'm going over here to the other side for all the experiences that I can possibly have. And you come over here and you get the roaring 20s, <laughs> something like that, where people say, I'm going to live life to the fullest because World War I just taught us that life is fragile, life is short. We have to take advantage and get all that we suck everything we can, you know, suck the marrow out of life, everything that we can over here because life will be uh, over soon. But it goes so far, uh, and especially in Whitman's day, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the things that he was writing about, it was all very sort of, you had to read between the lines, but everybody said, oh, wait a second, I think he's talking about some sort of sexual revolution where sort of anything goes. 
And, and at a certain point, it's like the, the whole country kind of said, okay, I mean, I understand living life to the full. I understand experiences and all this stuff. But some of the stuff you're talking about here, I'm not on board with that. And so there are certain times, and I, I think of even the 60s, um, when this experience and the drug use and the, the, the sexuality and everything, it goes so far the other direction that everybody says, look around, people are dying from the drugs. There's a whole group of, of these great rock and roll singers and innovators that died at the age of 27. They lived too hard. They died too young. Uh, they didn't get everything they could out of life. They got everything they could out of this moment of life and they forfeited the rest of their life for it. And so when bodies are found, or when all that promiscuity leaves a person feeling empty and used, they start to say, I can't, I'm just not on board with that. Um, even recently, I feel like in the United States, uh, you giving full, uh, full, uh, taking off all restraint and experience everything you are. That, that has been the mantra for the last 10, 15 years. And it came to the point where we had the transgender movement, okay? And, and, and so much of American society was like, okay, maybe I can get my head around this. I, I don't know. Uh, I want to be accepted. I don't want to persecute people no matter how they feel or what they, what they want. And then we get to the point where uh, a man wants to go into a, a woman's bathroom because he feels like a woman. And most people sit back and say, uh-uh. That I cannot accept. There you've gone too far. Or you've got somebody with testosterone going all through their, their blood who wants to compete in, in, in girls' sports. And everybody says, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm all for live and let live, but at that point you've gone too far. And the country pushes back against it. Because at some point, when we go to the extreme of either side, things start to fail. Things start, you start seeing things like, I, I was all for this, uh, developing ourselves in this area a little bit, but at a certain point, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't be on board with that anymore. And thus we start swinging back to the other side. Who knows where we'll go the next time around, okay? It's very hard for people to stay right in the sweet spot in the middle. We just can't do it. We swing back and forth so much. Wes, what does this have to do with the scripture that you were just reading? Well, you yearn for something, especially when you're young in life. Uh, you, when you start out, there's something that you hunger and thirst for. And I have a, a feeling that most people, um, when they think about life, when they think about options available to them, when they start um, looking towards their future, and it's graduation season, so a whole bunch of young people are out there right now, and they're, start to, they're going to start taking a step in a certain direction, it's hard to take that step because there's so many options available to you. But young people will right now either start chasing accomplishment, visible, tangible accomplishment, advancement in, in maybe technology or business, something like that, or they're going to start taking off in the other direction and they're going to try to experience everything they can in life to suck the marrow out of life. Hey, you only live once, right? So you got to go out there and you got to experience everything you can, especially while you're young, blah, 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 whatever. So people are going to go into those in one of those directions uh, right now with their life. Every day so you sort of make a choice 
Which of those directions am I going to go? And the writer of Ecclesiastes would be the great person to step back and look at all those graduates and all those young people and say, kids, I did both of them at the same time. I was a real Renaissance man. And it was all for nothing. And it was all meaningless. And I'll tell you why it ends in tragedies when you go off the deep end on either direction. It's because at a certain point, when you get towards this, point, this place where um, society can no longer accept it, when you get to that point, you lose your moral compass. You lose your moral compass. So uh, when you think about, say, uh, who were the robber barons? I mean, you think about um, maybe Carnegie or Rockefeller or Commodore Vanderbilt, some, some people like that or you think about any of the plantation owners in the South, at a certain point, the money was far more important than what they were doing to their workers. The money became more important. The, the advancement became more important. And so at a certain point, they lost their moral compass, and abuse and neglect and taking became the order of the day, and they could justify it any way they wanted to. But the rest of the society was looking at them and saying, Really? I, I'm sorry. I cannot be on board with what you're doing. I'm moving away from who you are. You yourself, though at one time you were the epitome of what I thought I wanted to be, now that I see what you've become, I cannot do that anymore. Or over here on the other side, when you see somebody talk about living life to the fullest and having all these experiences, it's inspiring and you want to do it. But at a certain point, if somebody goes too far in that direction, they lose their moral compass and you say, really, this is what it leads to? An opium den, human trafficking, all for your pleasure? Is that really, really where this ends? I'm sorry, I cannot be a part of that. And so we come back here to what Jesus has said. He looks at people. He looks at all the people at the foot of the mountain. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, do you see those people down there? They hunger and they thirst. And of course, they hunger and thirst literally. They, most of them are subsistence farmers. If they don't earn today, they don't eat today. They're day laborers. Their wage is three meals. That is the, that the amount of money they make can buy three meager meals. That's it. And if they miss a day of work, uh, they're, they're literally starving. They're literally on the verge of starving any time. And they live in a desert. Sandstorms, dust storms all fly in. And you can't keep it out of you. you know, they, that's why Arabs wrap themselves up like that as much as they do, trying to keep the dust out. But you can't. And actually, there are, there are cases... Uh, I was watching something about the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma recently. It got so bad, the dust storms got so bad that it didn't matter what you did. The dust would get up into your nose, and there were people that were caught out in it and died because there was so much dust, because they were so parched, because they could not get it out of their, their, their nasal passages in their mouth. In, in the Middle East and the desert, those kinds of things can happen. Those people know thirst like no manor knows thirst. So Jesus looks at them and he sees them literally hungry and thirsty. Uh, the, some of the greatest miracles in the Bible are around giving a bunch of bread to people who didn't have any bread and giving water to a bunch of people that didn't have any water. 
but he also sees in their hearts there's something they yearn for. And they yearn to either take themselves from this class to this class. But that is done by great hard work and achievement and building and saving money. That is how that is done. And that is a good thing. I want everybody to come out of poverty and up into uh, a higher and more stable class. I want that for everybody. But there were other people that said, you know what? I've lived here all my life. I've never left my village. Never left my village. I haven't left the state of Maine in a very long time, and it's driving me crazy. Can you imagine growing up in a village and never leaving that village? It happens in the world today, especially uh, back then. I yearn for experience. I yearn to see Jerusalem. I yearn to see the seaside. I yearn to see snow that I've never seen. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it. I want that experience. So Jesus looks down there and he sees people whose stomachs literally yearn for bread and water. But he also sees a bunch of people and their hearts and their souls are yearning for something else, something bigger, because this life is so dissatisfying. And it doesn't matter what class you're in. There is a point where you can look around and be very dissatisfied no matter what you've got. Even the wealthy can get very dissatisfied with this life. And so Jesus looks around and he says, there are people out there that are ready. They're ready because they know accomplishment is not going to fill the void. And they know that experience is not going to fill the void. The yearning will still remain. I'm looking for those people. Because I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll satisfy them. I'll satisfy them. And how will I satisfy them? I'll give them righteousness. I'll give them righteousness. You see, the reason that we're dissatisfied, the reason that we're empty, the reason that we yearn so much, either for physical things or for spiritual things, is because we lost it. In the fall of man, parts of ourselves were taken away, or we lost them, or we threw them aside, or they got so tarnished that we could start to feel the emptiness inside. And I think Adam and Eve felt it immediately, and it only gets bigger and bigger as humanity grows. That emptiness and that yearning just grows generation by generation. And Jesus says, I know why you lost it. I know why you lost your feeling of being filled, feeling of being satisfied. I can give it back to you. I can give it back to you. If you stop chasing accomplishment or stop chasing experience and start chasing me, I can satisfy you. And part of the reason, part of the reason is just because Jesus is, I mean, Jesus is just that wonderful, for one thing. But Jesus, this is a theological term, he imputes something to us. He imputes something to us. Uh, so, for example, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, if you've had the, the conversion experience, the salvation experience, then when God looks at you, he sees something different now. 
even though your life is not completely clean, even though there are still sins that you struggle with, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at you and he sees things that we would say, well, God, that's just a figure, figure of your imagination. And he would say, no, 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 I have imputed the righteousness of Christ over to you. There's this great doctrine that people write books about called justification. Justification by... And so what we believe is that when you trust Christ and his sacrifice, when you trust what Jesus has done for you, he takes his righteousness and applies it to you. He imputes it over to you. And so this righteousness that you yearn for actually can be given to you in an instant, but then also Jesus starts working on you to take away from you, to get rid of the things that cause the emptiness in you. And it's worth it. Whatever achievement that you've been yearning for, working for, and it's really not happening, and it's not satisfying, you can throw it away. I invite you today to throw it away. And whatever experience over here that you think will make you feel whole, whatever experience that you've, that's over here that you say, if I could just do that, then I will be happy, I invite you today to throw that away. Because as Jesus would tell you, and as the writer of Ecclesiastes would tell you, it won't. The yearning will still be there. The emptiness will still be there. All you can do is fill your life with Jesus. But that's enough. That's enough. And I'll tell you why. Because you might think that Commodore Vanderbilt built the biggest empire in the world. Or that Rockefeller built the biggest empire in, America, in, in the world. Or that Caesar built the biggest empire in, in the world. Actually, it was Genghis Khan who built the biggest empire in the world. Except, no. If you want to be with an empire builder, if you want to be with a kingdom builder, if you want to take part in kingdom building like nobody else has ever done before, I invite you to side with Jesus. Because the kingdom of God pervades everywhere in the world. It's so big you can't even see it. It's all around you and you don't even know it. But it crosses borders, it crosses trades, it cro crosses markets, it's everywhere. And it's taking over more of the world anywhere, any, everywhere there is. It will not stop until Jesus owns the whole world, until his kingdom is finally built. But it is a kingdom with a moral compass. It is a kingdom that everywhere it goes, people are restored, not used. People are built up. People are edified. People come out stronger instead of used up. Furthermore, if it's experience that you chase, I invite you to walk with Jesus because he will give you uh, the experience of, of eternity. There was, a, uh, there was a story in the Bible. Is it Matthew 17? The Transfiguration. Where Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up onto a mountain to just have a little word of prayer, like Jesus always did. They just go up there for a prayer time. But instead, something else happens. They are enveloped in the presence of God. And they see at first, here's Jesus. They don't, I think, I think they don't get who he is yet. They see Moses. 
Moses. That's incredible. I've heard about Moses all my life. I've read all of his writings all my life. I can't believe it. I'm in the presence of Moses. What a glorious experience. And look over here. Here's Elijah, the powerful prophet. I've read about him all my life. I thought he was the guy all my life, the most powerful person I've ever heard of, the most powerful follower of God I've ever heard of in my life. And there he is. It's incredible. This experience is glorious. And then when they're really starting to get it wrong, get their experience wrong, the booming voice of God comes over. And when they hear it, they lie face down on the ground. Oh my, we're hearing the voice of God. And he says, this is my beloved son. Why are you so enraptured with Moses? Why are you so enraptured with Elijah? This is my son. Listen to him. And they look up, and there's Jesus. And they walk down the mountain saying, what just happened? What an incredible experience. We were in heaven for a moment. The law, the prophets, God himself, right there with us. Where else could heaven be but there? Glorious experience. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Not until after I've resurrected. Then you can tell everybody. And that's how we all know about it. I don't know what you yearn for. I don't know what your heart is empty for. Is it, is it yearning for great accomplishment and wealth building and kingdom building of your own? Or is it yearning for great experience? I invite you. Throw them both away and experience the kingdom that Jesus is building and experience the worship that will go on for eternity. No matter what you can experience in this life, it won't, it will all pale in comparison to worship in glory forever. And whatever house or business you are going to uh, build, it will pale in comparison to the heaven that, Je that Jesus is building for you forever. Jesus is the center of everything that you should strive for. All kingdom and accomplishment, all experience, with the perfect moral compass right there in Jesus. Seek his face, and you will be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, you, you know what makes us tick, and you know what's wrong with us. And thank you, God, for calling us out of the things that are killing us and into the life-giving, glorious, beautiful, experiential kingdom that you are building. We bless your holy name. Help us to set our moral compass aright with you and help us to learn to be satisfied in the things that are of eternal consequence. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, have a great day. Get out, get some sun, do some kingdom building with Jesus. Bye.